Testing. Whoa. Hey. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? You're excited to be here for Stand Firm, I presume? Wow, we're going to warm that up a little bit. I don't know what happened just now. Uh, I know for a fact Tom didn't put you to sleep because that was a a rousing introduction to our our day ahead of us today. But certainly we're here to gather around the gospel, the supremacy, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I've been invited this morning to open up our, our discussions today, our talks and sessions on this grand theme, the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing firm on the gospel. Now, for those that don't know me, my name is Craig. I uh, serve in uh, upstate New York in a church in Rochester called Journey Christian Church. But many moons ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was the pastor of this very church for about nine years, almost exactly nine years. And actually, this week just gone, I believe it was Wednesday of this week, this church, Hope Reformed Baptist Church, celebrated its anniversary. How many years, Tom? Was it 14, 14 years this, uh, this week. So we're so thankful to see God continue the work here. I know many of you are from many different churches, so that won't quite resonate with you. But I can assure you as the founding pastor of this work here, way back when, uh, before I had facial hair or body fat, I used to pastor. Uh, well, I had a little bit, let's be honest. But I wasn't, I wasn't Texas-sized like I, I grew to become when I moved to East Texas about five years ago. Now, as I say, we're in upstate New York, pastoring Journey Christian Church. And we are just excited about what, what God is going to do together in our midst here this morning. Grab a Bible. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to go to what is appreciated, and rightly so, is a quintessential text around and discussing the gospel. And that is, of course, Romans 1.16. Some would, some would posit and suggest that it was this verse that literally launched the the Reformation, that that launched the movement of restoring the gospel and the scripture to the people of God. As uh, as one German monk who liked his beer a little too much, Martin Luther, uh, a stubby young man, found this verse, wrestled with the reality of the righteousness of God and realized that what the Spirit is communicating is that salvation is free and available to all who will merely come and receive it by Faith. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Many years ago, I was pastoring a church in southeast Queensland, spoiler alert, literally this church, and I was invited to go along to a, a pastor's conference that was being hosted uh, down on the Gold Coast, a whole bunch of different churches. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of a one-church deal, and I went down to it, and it was really touted as a, as a gathering of ministers and elders and overseers and pastors where we can just get together and be refreshed and be encouraged and, and just kind of enjoy some camaraderie. And we were told, I was told, the theme of the conference would be the gospel. It would just be just the simple truth of the gospel. And so I went along, actually went with my associate at the time, and we spent three days with, with a room full of pastors and international guests and speakers that had been flown in to address this subject of the gospel. And for three consecutive days, the talks were, were profound, they, they were deep, there was some good humor, some, some great faithful exposition. And at the end of the conference, me and my associate were driving back up here to, uh, to Underwood to, to come and, and prepare for Sunday. And I turned as we were driving back to my associate and I said, that was a great conference. 
we, we, had a, we had a great time, did we not? We, we, we met some new friends. We connected with some old friends. We had a kind of a, a repose, as it were. But you know what was missing? Yeah, some of you got it. So for three consecutive days, all of these world-class expositors and theologians and authors and pastors had been gathered and had been assigned topics to speak about the gospel, around the gospel. So you can imagine the sessions were gospel-fueled pastoral ministry, gospel-based word ministry, gospel-centered pastoral care. You know, it, that, that was kind of session after session was, was how is the gospel everything? And after three days, and I'm not trying to critique or, or be unfair to any of the speakers, the topics they were assigned, they executed with alacrity and, and with, uh, with some great skill and expertise. But what was staggering to me is after three days with these profound authors and theologians that were globally renowned, not once had any of us actually heard an explicit articulation of the gospel. Of the gospel. Now you may say, well, do you know it's a pastor's conference? Do they need that? You know, these guys are these guys are paid professional gospelers. Do, do they need that? This is a this is a conference for local church elders and overseers, and do they need that? They need that more than anyone. More than anything. The easiest thing to do in vocational ministries, I'm coming up to running into my 20th year of vocational ministry. The easiest thing to do is to forget the gospel. It, it, it's to make ministry about everything else. It's to be, it's to be the most articulate preacher. It, it's to be the, most, the, most, the preacher with the best comedic timing, with the, with the best stories, and, and, and the, the most engaging speaker, and, and the preacher that can sit down with people and, and, and can comfort them and console them and pastoral care and counseling and leading committees and so on and so forth, and fail to realize that the calling of gospel ministers, in fact, I'll say it even stronger than that, the calling of every Christian on planet Earth to Today is to frequently articulate the truth of the gospel. And it's simple. It's a message that I would presume every single one of us that entered into these double doors here today have some appreciation of. We just sang it in these hymns, in these songs. We, we, heard, we heard Tom reference it profoundly in his, in his opening pitch. We, we wake up, we go to bed, we, we, we are confronted with the reality that we are sinners. Each and every one of us is bankrupt before the justice of a holy God. And nothing we can do will ever remedy that state of irreconciliation. We are bankrupt before God. But this wonderful line in the hymn that we've just sung together is that heaven's peace and perfect justice has kissed a guilty world in love, which is that God has sent forth His Son, His perfect, sin-free, holy, harmless, undefiled Son into this world to live the sin-free life that every single person in this room utterly failed to do. And then this Jesus Christ, which was His, which was his appointed name, Messiah, Christ, Lord, Savior, went to that splintering Roman cross to bear in his body and soul the very wrath that you and I deserve to bear on account of our sin. His soul, we read in Isaiah 53, his soul was made an offering for sin. It's a, it's a reality that each and every one of us must appreciate that Jesus' sin-free life, his substitutionary atoning death, his triumphant resurrection for death had no warrant or license to, to hold him and to retain him and to imprison him. Jesus rises in victory. And all and everyone, as we've just read in this quintessential gospel text, 
Everyone who believes in him will be saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. This gospel, Paul says, beyond just, a, beyond just an explicit articulation of it, this gospel is the power of God. Sometimes what we do in our reductionism is we start to imagine that the gospel is a story, it's a message, it's, 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 a, it's data, and that what happens in the person that hears the gospel, I remember the first time I ever heard the gospel, I'd never heard news so good in all my life, I wanted it, I wanted to live it out, I wanted to embrace it. Sometimes what we do is we begin to, we begin to get a little bit intoxicated in our own sense of self-importance and value and power, and we imagine that we are offering the power in the gospel message by our belief. But that's not apostolic doctrine. That's not what Paul believed. More than just a message, and please don't mishear me this morning, the gospel is a message. If there isn't an explicit articulation of the person and the work and the substitutionary atonement and resurrection of Jesus, then it's not the gospel. And let me make another side note to that just to be really clear. I've said this recently this week with some folk here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. If the gospel becomes everything, then it's nothing at all. It's nothing at all. If, you, if you're frequenting online blogs and, and online ministries or, or conferences and seminars and you're reading books by authors that perpetually want you to believe the gospel's everything, right? Like, like, gospel, like gospel everything, like gospel flower arrangements or gospel carpet on the stage or, or gospel pulpits or gospel lighting. And, or, it doesn't sound like that. I, I, I'm being mocking on, on purpose here. It sounds like gospel hospitality and gospel mow your neighbor's lawn and, and gospel wave to your friends as you drive by. And ultimately, everything becomes the gospel and what's missing is the actual articulation of the gospel. What's missing is this message which Paul stresses is the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just content for a story. It is embedded with divine power to literally change lives and bring the new birth to the glory of God. This is what Paul says about this gospel. This gospel being the power of God, God's miraculous intervention, we ought never to assume it. We ought never to assume it. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from the 19th century, used to encourage his pastors when he set up a pastor's college in London, don't ever assume the gospel. Every time you preach, every song you sing, every, every time you gather as an assembled church, ensure that the gospel is being repeated continuously. There's this story I actually told this week to a few young guys here at Hope that are preparing for ministry. I told them this story about the life of Charles Spurgeon. If you ever read his autobiography, two volumes published by Banner of Truth uh, Trust, uh, not technically an autobiography. His wife, Susie, compiled them from his journals and his sermons after he had passed away. But there's this wonderful chapter that relates some of the more miraculous conversions under the ministry of this anointed preacher of God. There's this one curious story. It's one curious story, and, and it comes on the back of this foundation. The gospel ought never to be assumed. It ought always to be explicitly articulated. So the story is that there was this middle-aged gentleman, well-to-do man, living in London in the Victorian era, and his wife and his children were Christians. In fact, not just Christians, they frequented... I'm losing my uh, cable here. 
you see me getting tangled up here, it's because I keep almost tripping on my cable. Apologize. Back to the story, friends. So there's this, this London man who's doing really well for himself. His wife and children are believers, and they attend the Metropolitan Tabernacle every Sunday. That's Charles Spurgeon's church in, in London. And each, each weekend, they beg their husband, their father, come along. Come to the service. Come and join us. Worship with us. And he's so obstinate in his atheism and unbelief, he refuses to go. Now, this goes on for months. In fact, this goes on for years. And he kind of cottons on to the idea that the one way to perhaps stop this incessant, unceasing nagging is to go. So he says to his wife and children, I, I'm going to go once. But I'm only going to go once if you assure me that having attended once, you won't ever ask me again. And of course, the wife and the daughters had been praying for this, and this is a deal too good to be true. And so that Sunday, he went along with his family to the Metropolitan Tabernacle Sunday morning church worship service. And there he was, and if you can picture this, you'll get, the, the, you'll get the humor of the scene. He comes into the church, sits up the back with his family, and he plugs his ears. He only promised he would attend. He never promised he would pay any attention at all. And so for the opening songs and the scripture reading and even for the entire sermon, the, the greatest preacher in the English language, Charles Spurgeon, is exposing the text and this obstinate man is sitting there with his fingers buried deep inside his ear canals, refusing to engage or hear or be part of it at all. And the service goes on. The services were a little longer back then than maybe they are today. And he was committed to this posture. He gets toward the end of the service. In fact, it's the final song. He sees everyone else upstanding, be upstanding, and so he, he stands up and they're singing the final hymn, and his fingers are just immovable. They're almost glued inside his ears. And the final lines of the final hymn of the worship service at the Metropolitan Tabernacle are being sung around him. This fly starts to flitter around him. Like just... <laughs> You already know where the story's going, I presume, but just take a moment and enjoy the humor of the Lord. This fly, the agency of God is this fly, and it's buzzing, and he's getting agitated, right? It lands on his nose, and he kind of shakes his head. You can picture it, right? This guy looks like he's verifiably insane. He needs to be sent off to a round padded room and be, be put on some mind-bending drugs. Like, that's what this guy looks like, and this fly won't go away. And finally, for the last time, it So, takes one hand out of his ear and swats at it. And the moment he does that, the 5,000-strong crowd that attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle, in singing their closing hymn for the day, sang a line from a hymn, Behold the Lamb slain for the salvation of the world, for the sins of the world. He immediately undergoes this crushing sense of conviction believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and is saved. It's astounding. And the reality is that although I'm not guaranteeing any of you those kinds of experiences, that's, that's entirely up to the providential rule and the sovereignty of God. But our obligation is to proclaim, it's to declare, it's to explicitly articulate the gospel. And where we fail to do that, that line of that hymn, that Sunday morning, could have been the most poetic, the most glorious, the best, the best string of English words assembled together for a hymn that has ever been put together in the English language. And if it didn't have the gospel, it's powerless to save. But it had the gospel. So when Paul makes this statement, 
This gospel is the power of God. He's saying more than just, if people don't have the information, then they can't embrace it by faith. He's saying embedded in the information and the heralding of the information is the power that's required to take souls and enter into the kingdom of life. How is the gospel the power of God? What is, what is Paul saying? He's saying that the gospel is affirmative. He's saying the gospel is positive, it's exhaustive, and it's the definitive statement of salvation from God. So when saying the affirmative, what Paul is arguing is that this gospel coheres with reality. When, when humble hearts hear the gospel, even if they don't receive it in the moment, they recognize that the information of the gospel resonates with their experience. When the gospel says there's none good, no, not one. There's none that seek after God. All have turned aside. All have fallen away. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. Every humble sinner knows you're basically reading my chart. That's me. You're essentially outlining my existence. None have loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength as we have been commanded to do. It is the affirmative statement of God of the reality of our current condition. Now, beyond that, it's not just that. It's more than that. It's positive. The gospel is a positive statement. It's, it's hopeful. It, it's confident. Where the law, which we've just referenced or inferenced, where the law is negative, the gospel is the superlative word of positivity. George Swinock, the Puritan, wrote this. He said, the law is a court of justice, but the gospel is a throne of grace. It's exhaustive. That means that the gospel, the self-contained glory of salvation in the gospel, is lacking nothing. It leaves nothing out. There's nothing left to chance. There's no guesswork. This, I think this is the greatest temptation, and we'll address this a little later on in my next session on pastors that stand firm on the truth of the Word of God. This is the greatest temptation that pastors perpetually undergo, is to augment the gospel. It's to, it's, to begin to, it's to begin to doubt the power of the gospel or the essential nature of the gospel. The pastors feel this, this, this pressure all the time to do better, uh, to preach clearer, to tell better stories, to be more, uh, more funny, to, to just be more engaging. And It's too easy to neglect the reality that if anybody's going to have a life-changing experience in the proclamation of the word, it's based upon the power of God resonant in the gospel, and not my ability to wow you with my articulation. It is exhaustive, and it is definitive. It's the final word. It is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God. It's not option B, C, or D, and you get to choose your own adventure. It is the power of God. Reject the gospel, and you are utterly desolate without any hope at all. This is the nature of the gospel. It's not a bandage. It's not a band-aid solution. It's the gospel. I'm supposed to be very sensitive here this morning of my time. I have no idea what my time is, Tom. So, no. So, just um, throw a drop kick at me or something when it's... Did you say nine minutes? I just got started. <laughs> all right. We're going to skip a whole bunch of stuff. Nine minutes. God is good, right? God is good. I thought you were messing with me. All right, nine minutes. I had the best story to tell you about when I was one time in the rural part of the developing world and had my shoulder entirely thrown out, but I'm going to have to leave that for another time. Come and ask me that in one of the breaks, that story.
I have to close with an account. Nine minutes is just enough time to squeeze in this final account for you. The essential nature and the necessity of the gospel's articulation. Never assume the gospel. Never leave the gospel out. Never disbelieve in the power of the gospel or its definitive statement of God's grace and power. We go back to the early 1800s. A missionary sent out with his wife, Adniram and Ann Judson, from, from the, the northeast, sailing all the way over to India. They finally land in Burma to be missionaries, Baptist missionaries, often touted as the, the first American foreign missionaries sent to, the, sent to Burma, and th so they were. And they went to Burma, they went to the Southeast Asian part of the world in, in a time where you didn't really survive very long. In fact, the statistics have been, um, have been analyzed. And if you went to that part of the world, Southeast Asia, your life expectancy, once you arrived, was five years. The average life expectancy for Western missionaries arriving in Southeast Asia was five years. Now, here's the, here's the catch, right? Here's the clincher. It takes four years to acquire the language enough to be able to preach. So these guys that were signing up for missions work in the early 1800s were ostensibly signing up for one year's work. Four years of grueling language training while their body is breaking down from certain diseases and, and different, different things in climate and, and issues that they'd never suffered from before. In their last year, they would get a chance to preach, and then they'd go to their reward. Now, that was, that was normal. That was par for the course. But this one missionary, Adoniram Judson, outlasted all of them. In fact, he was in Burma for decades. He was, he was often appreciated as something of an anomaly. How is his body so robust? He often got sick. He buried two wives, six children, because of how harsh the environment was compared to what their bodies were used to. And after several decades, his health had so broken down that the doctors encouraged him, you're going to die, which Judson was perfectly content with. All right, I'm going to die. That's fine. I've had a great run. I've been preaching for decades where most other missionaries that sailed out to do work in this region did not survive. Let me die. But the doctors and the mission sending agency were not willing to allow Judson to just die in a ditch in Burma. And so he was encouraged to go on a, on a sailing trip back to the U.S. They used to believe back then that one of the greatest medical interventions, one of the greatest remedies was, was warm sea air. Now he was suffering from tuberculosis, so a lot of good that was doing him. But, but, but medical understanding has advanced quite significantly since those days. He goes back to the U.S. He hadn't been there in literally decades. And there he was, trying his best to recover and to not work. Now, you can imagine when he arrives in the U.S., you can imagine he's like celebrity. Every church, every conference, every denomination, every publishing house wanted to secure Judson for a, a speaking event, for, for, for a promotion event. And Judson said no to all of it. In fact, he could barely talk at all. Such was his ill health. His body was so broken, he could barely speak louder than a whisper. Now, curiously, on that time back in the U.S., he agreed to do one event in an old church in his old hometown. Now, he was announced as the guest preacher at this small little country town church, maybe sat about 800 people, and the entire, that entire part of the country swarmed to the church. In fact, it was reputed that on the day that Judson would speak, trains were backed up and blocked 
that the, the church building nearly crumbled under the weight of people packing in to get just a glimpse of this missionary. They came from all around. They queued up for hours outside the church building, desperately seeking to get a seat before such a man who had no doubt many thrilling stories to tell. And Judson did. If you've never read a biography of Adoniram Judson, I encourage you to read it. Some of the most astounding missionary stories come from that man's life. His health is broken. His voice rendered a mere whisper. Judson nevertheless took the platform and spoke passionately for 15 minutes. After that time, he went down, sat down, and left. This was America's longest living pioneer missionary, standing before a sea of admiring brothers and sisters in Christ. This man escaped death from both wild cats and emperors alike. He had no shortage of stories to tell. Nevertheless, on this occasion, Judson did nothing more and nothing less than tell the one story that moved him the most. For 15 minutes... In his, in his kind of, this holy hush of a whisper that he could, he could express, he just told the story of Christ in him crucified. That God sent his son, his only begotten son, born of the virgin woman, born under the law, to succeed in keeping the law where every sinner failed, and yet to go to the cross and to be punished on behalf of those who would receive him by faith. To his dismay, the people's reaction was not quite what Judson expected. The people are very much disappointed, a friend said to him on their journey home. They wonder why you didn't talk about something else. Why, Judson said, what did they want? I presented to the best of my ability the most interesting subject in the world. But they wanted something different, this friend implored. They, they, they wanted a story. Well, Judson says, I'm sure I gave them quite the story. The most thrilling story that could ever be conceived of. Of course, Judson is referencing the story of Christ and him crucified. His friend continued to implore, but they'd heard that before. They, they wanted something new from a man who just returned from the antipodes, from the, from the wild jungles of Burma. Judson became agitated. He said that I'm glad that they now can say that a man coming from the Antipodes has nothing better to tell them than the wondrous story of the dying love of Jesus. He didn't stop there. My business, he said, is to preach the gospel of Christ. And when I can speak at all, I dare not trifle with my commission. When I looked upon these people today, I remembered that I shall meet them next, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And I cannot furnish food for vain curiosity or tickle the fancy with amusing stories, however decently strung together a thread of religion. This is not, Judson finished by saying, this is not what Christ meant by preaching the gospel. Then how can I hereafter meet these, the fearful charge from the Lord? I gave you one opportunity to tell them of me. You spent it describing your own adventures. This was the burden of Judson. This meeting house filled to the brim with thousands of people. And maybe even in that place, people that had never heard the gospel, or maybe had heard the gospel, but had just had been successful in resisting it, re repelling it, rejecting it. And Judson said, I, I could have got up there and, and wowed the crowd with any number of powerful stories. 
But the greatest story of all, and the only story pregnant with God's power to literally change lives, is the message of Christ and Him crucified. We thank God for this wonderful opportunity we have today to gather at this conference, standing firm on the message of Christ and Him crucified. God bless you. Thank you for your attention here this morning.